Welcome to The Disability Track, a podcast that explores the lives of those with disabilities and long-term health conditions in the UK. Hi, welcome to The Disability Track. My name is Wadeli. My name's Steph. So we started this podcast because we felt there was a bit of a gap in the market. There are obviously podcasts out there that are discussing disability, but we think there should be more. Disabled people are obviously quite marginalised in UK society, don't have as much of a voice as they should do, and disability activism isn't covered as much as it should be. So we thought we'd start this podcast to explore what it's like to live as a disabled person in this country or someone who has a long-term health condition. Steph, do you mind talking about what illness, disability, long-term health condition you have? Yeah, I'm formally diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. I've been treated for OCD, but I'm also awaiting diagnoses on other illnesses. Uh Okay, and I have Crohn's disease, which is inflammatory bowel disease. And so, yeah, that's kind of really difficult. And it's brought on mental health illnesses such as anxiety and depression. We hope to have some good discussions, some good interviews with special guests. If you enjoy it, we'd really appreciate it if you rate and review the podcast on iTunes. There is also our Facebook page, which you can follow. You can also follow our Twitter page. And the handle for that is disability T, but disability is spelled with two S's. The first segment for the podcast is the headlines, where we cover mainstream or niche stories about you know, life with a disability or long-term health condition in the UK. So the first article I want to talk about is one that Steph actually sent me, and it's about the Paralympian Anne Wuffrula strike. She was left on a plane for 45 minutes. She's a wheelchair user, and she says that she has felt neglected after having to basically just sit on a plane after everyone had... What's the opposite of boarded? Um, after, everyone had left, after, after everyone had unboarded... And yeah, we're gonna go with it. (laughs) Unboarded, I'm saying that on my chest, and yeah, so airport staff didn't help her for 45 minutes, which is kind of grim. And yeah, you've also said that you've heard that it's a common thing, which is what Anna's saying as well. Yeah, um, there's been similar things. There's actually, I saw it on the news last night. Uh, Tanya Lee Davis, she's a comedian, she's based in Norwich. She didn't get her wheelchair for two hours and they actually lost a custom fitting which allows her to carry luggage and stuff and she travels quite a lot on her own and without that she can't. Stands to basically getting a lot of, uh, I'm trying to think of a word that isn't (laughs) swearing. Grief. Yes, we'll go for that one. There are also people on Twitter that have responded to that article So Ned Rutzen said, this has happened to my wife twice this year at Stansted. Ryanair plane for over an hour at 12.30am, eventually being told no lift available. Easy jet plane for 45 minutes. Complained to Stansted three times, heard nothing. And his wife has secondary progressive MS. There's also another complaint from Morag Braithwaite. She said, this is not unusual for someone in a wheelchair or who needs assistance. I was stranded on a British Airways flight with only the crew nearly an hour and needed the toilet I don't know why I'm surprised but I just haven't these things don't get coverage and I think one of the reasons why Anne Wafula Strikers got coverage is she has an MBE 
she's a Paralympian. So I think she has the access to the media, whereas there are so many other people that don't. And like talking about Anne's MBE, she said that the whole incident has made her lose her dignity. And it's interesting that she's got an MBE. She's a patron for several disability charities. And just like a moment like that can just take all of that away from you. Yeah, I don't even really know what to say because it's the thing that I think got me was the fact that they were saying it's to do with baggage handling. Mm-hmm. So, oh, there was a delay. Yeah, this was the airport's re- official response. They said on Friday evening, bad weather across Europe unfortunately resulted in significant delays to some aircraft landing in Stansted and had a knock-on impact on the baggage handling delivery times for a number of our passengers. Um, but why do, the, why do people with disabilities have to suffer the most because of that? Well, what I mean is baggage handling was what I was <laughs> focusing mm. on. You can't put somebody's suitcase on the same kind of level as someone's wheelchair oh okay yeah I get what you're saying yeah that's true. I mean they're saying like wheelchair services at London Stansted are operated by Omniserve at great expense to the airlines yeah like it's not like something that you have to do like it's not a necessity like oh we're doing you a favor uh by yeah. Letting, yeah. <laughs> letting you move around the airport yeah. yeah that is a pretty shoddy response um, and also, there's, for a bit of background, Anne Wafuda-Strike also got some media coverage quite recently when she went public about being on a train and the, access- the accessible toilets were out of order. And so she was forced to wet herself on the train. I heard this. Yeah. Tanya Lee Davis also had something relatively similar where she didn't get any kind of, I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was to do with trains. Oh, okay. And I think it was... She wasn't given proper disabled access. Uh huh. So that is a huge, a huge issue with transport and the way they view their disabled customers. Because these people are paying for this service as well. Yeah. And you can't even treat them like a human. But uh, a bit of, I guess you could say it's good news. Anne Wafula Strike, some other Paralympians and Inclusion London, they are starting a campaign to basically raise money so that people that have been treated like that, disabled people that have been treated like that by transport companies, can essentially take them to court, hold them accountable. And I will post a link for their, the Crowd Justice page in the show notes. But yeah, so my second article is actually an interview. And it's a Guardian interview with Rosie Jones, who is a comedian. I don't know if you've heard of her, Steph. I haven't, no. Oh, she's brilliant. So I saw her at Women of the World Festival in Norwich and she was just amazing. I'd never heard of her before, but she she was by far the standout comedian on that show. Rosie has cerebral palsy. And in this interview, she basically is talking about how that affects her, her humour, how that affects her shows, access to shows. She talks about her comedy separately from her disability as well, which is quite interesting. So one of the things that Rosie says in the interview is, because of my disability, I know how to push things and I know where the line is. I can probably push that line further than a lot of able-bodied comics. So Steph, you like comedy, you've done a few comedy shows, you like comedy writing, comedy performance. What do you think about that quote? I mean, I guess. I think it really depends on kind of the context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. She also says that... also when you're a disabled comic, you're kind of more aware of yourself as a person and kind of you're standing in things. Yeah. 
So she's also said that before entering comedy, she thought she couldn't become a comedian because people would get to her punchline before she did because she speaks very slowly as a result of her cerebral palsy. And then she said, then I realised I could use it as a device. So they get to the punchline, but it's not necessarily my punchline, which is so true. When I saw perform live, you think the jokes go in a certain way and you think, oh, like, yeah, I can predict this ending. And she totally switches it up and it makes you feel like an idiot. And it's also very funny. Like, she's very, very skilled. She also talks about accessibility and she says that a lot of... On iTunes. This stuff, do you want to tell us a bit about what the podcast is about? As someone who hasn't got much of an issue with walking, I've never thought of it before. And she said that... I've experienced Mm -hmm. this. Um, I've got a friend, she has severe damage to her legs and she has to walk with a crutch and she probably can't walk more than a couple of metres without sitting down. And I took her to a comedy show. I hadn't been to this gig before. I didn't realise it was on the third floor of a pub and there was no lift. And I had to help her up and I just felt so guilty because I didn't even think, oh, is there going to be stairs? But the responsibility isn't all on you. A lot of it is on the comedy club. Yeah, to make no, sure they're not sure. excluding a certain group of people. I bet you're going to be hyper aware when you're performing now. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I'm doing a gig on Monday, and I'm just going to be so aware of. Oh, if I had a wheelchair, this would never. I'd never be able to do this. And comedy doesn't seem like something that should be mm. inaccessible. Yeah, that's true. That's true. She also says that her priority when she's performing, when she's writing, is getting on stage to make people laugh which is the which would be the priority of an able-bodied person too she also says that being relatable to disabled people is great but it's a byproduct her priority is making people laugh i don't know if you can relate to that i think the thing is with any comedian is the main goal is make the audience laugh and then you have your own secondary goals which change from person to person like if you're a disabled person especially if you have a very visible illness is bringing that into it and like I know a lot of comedians of color that will bring race issues and that into it as well so I think yeah I can definitely I definitely see that even though I don't talk about my own illnesses and my stand-up set can I ask why just because a comedian having depression is really not a very unique thing oh okay I feel like it's kind of a necessity, like it's a pre prerequisite. Is you can only be a comedian if you have at least three mental illnesses. There's a tick box. Yeah, exactly. You have to fill in a form. Um, so I don't. I probably will at some point, but I feel like it's something I talk about quite a lot anyway. So I wanted to do something yeah. very different. Okay. Our first segment would normally be a guest interview, but for the first episode we're going to explore what exactly a disability is. So we asked some of our friends how they define a disability. It depends how you define disability, which is obviously what you're after. Is it is it mental? Is it physical? Is it emotional? So there's so many things. A disability is a mental or physical impairment that stops you from functioning or doing everyday things. Disability is where a person cannot function uh, 100% like everybody else who has, who has got all the limbs and who has all the mental capability. 
So um, I see disability to include anybody who has got impaired uh, vision, impaired mental uh, capability and impaired uh, movement. The best place to start would be with the 2010 Equality Act. So the government has said a disability is if you have a physical or mental impairment that has a substantial and long-term negative effect on your ability to do normal daily activities. So I definitely class myself as having a disability under the, the 2010 Equality Act. Yeah, Crohn's disease is disabling. It can make you really tired. It can make you like not want to go somewhere because you need the toilet a lot. It can, you know, it brings on mental health difficulties. So it does, it is substantially long-term. Do you feel like your depression and your own long-term health conditions come under the 2010 Equality Act? Well, with the definition that they're using, definitely. Uh-huh. Because after I graduated, there was about a four-month period where I literally, like, couldn't do anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, I couldn't work. I couldn't leave the house most days. I, most people just didn't see me for a couple of months. I stopped. I just, I couldn't do anything. I wasn't eating. I wasn't, like, washing properly. So under that, then, yeah, if it comes to things such as disability benefits, I wouldn't be considered. Yeah, exactly. On the Disability Rights website, it says that disability living allowance, personal independence payment and attendance allowance each have their own tests of disability. I'm just going to say, and I'm not even going to, use nicer language uh that's bullshit the whole disability personal independence payment the way that they define it is just rubbish oh yes i know too well yeah i think you have a better understanding than anyone which is like the way that they you literally are basically not able to move that's essentially what you need (laughs) to get it i first had to fill out this huge like booklet and they're asking questions like, can you shower by yourself? And it's like, yes, I can, because I have to. And But I, that does not make me very ill. And then you, someone came around to my house to ask me questions, which I kind of felt a bit intimidating. And you don't know what their criteria is. So you find yourself maybe like exaggerating certain things because you, you're like, I really need this, but I feel like they don't know that. Also, I had to go into a centre and be asked questions again. And I actually did get personal independence payment. And then I got it taken off me. My friend, her mum, mm-hmm. I can't remember what she has. Maybe MS? Or something similar. And she did. She went through PIP and she put, can you wash yourself? And she was like, yes, but I have to do it in the sink. I can't. Get in, mm-hmm. we don't have a shower I can't get in the bath and they considered that that she could wash herself like they'll find as many reasons as they can and like from what I understand they have a number of how many people they have to fail oh I see I see and they were they took her disability benefits I have to away. say like I'm I'm very privileged so when my personal independence payment was taken away from me my parents helped me financially but there are people out there who who don't have that backup yeah definitely oh an interesting thing is with the 2010 equality act they have exclusions so some of the exclusions are addiction hay fever which i i agree with and the tendency to physically or sexually abuse other people 
which I found interesting because recently I've seen like a discussion going around Twitter about whether paedophilia should be classed as a disability. That's interesting. I haven't heard that one. I've heard it as like a mental illness, but I wouldn't say it's a disability. Yeah. It's, it's... The thing is with paedophilia, something I didn't think we'd discuss, but we'll do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're bringing that in. There's a difference between being sexually attracted to children and acting on it. Yes. Sure. Like, I'm not saying that I condone people being sexually attracted to children, but I do think that there is a conscious act within pedophilia. And I don't consider that a disability if you're, like, consciously acting on it. Mm, I think you've taken the words out of my mouth. What do you think about addiction? So addiction to alcohol, drugs, sex? Well, the Equality Act is mainly to do with hiring, isn't it? And, like, not being able to be fired for something. That is true, actually. Maybe... Yeah, so it's like a kind of practical definition. Which, I mean, not hiring someone because, you know, they're a heroin addict uh, is very different to not hiring someone because they have cerebral palsy. Addiction can be really disabling. Oh, I consider addiction a mental illness. Like, entirely. Like, I do think that it should be treated as a mm. mental illness. And I think outside of things like the Equality Act, I think I would maybe consider it a disability yeah okay got you but again there's also conscious acts within that which makes it very difficult because you're not yeah I think the bottom line for me is that no one chooses to be an addict it's not a great quality of life oh no for sure so yeah I I I I would put it under a disability I think it's a bit of a contentious one though the other one is obesity yes okay some people consider that a disability because it does actually tick all the boxes of the Equality Act because mm. it can make it very difficult to do everyday things mm. and it does mean that you're not as capable of doing things as like a thinner person would be able to. Yeah. I personally would never count it as a disability. Wouldn't you? How come? Well, the thing is, is I would if it was, for example, illnesses brought on by obesity for example i think knee problems is a big one uh diabetes type 2 heart conditions stuff like that but like as a fat person i wouldn't consider it a disability but then i think this is talking about people that are way bigger than me right something to think about So uh, my segment each week is going to be pop culture and media and disabilities. The one that I've chosen for this week as kind of an introduction thing is documentaries. So the two that I've picked out specifically, there was a series, I don't know if either of them still run, but on Channel 4 it was extraordinary, no it wasn't, Channel 4 was Body Shock. Uh And then Channel 5 had Extraordinary People. And basically what these documentaries do is they follow people with unusual bodies or conditions or situations, essentially, and they follow them and their lives and they talk about what it is. And there's been various things, like there's a girl that aged backwards, yeah. essentially. There's a girl that was born with her legs fused together. Mm-hmm. And we, the documentary that we've watched is it was a body shock one about a boy named David Vetter who was born without an immune system and basically grew up within a uh, incubator, just this giant bubble. What did you think of it? It's just kind of odd, really, because the way that they're talking about it, they never, as far as I'm aware, they didn't mention the word disability. No, they didn't. 
even though it was incredibly disabling because he literally never left the bubble until he was dying. Why do you think they didn't use the word disability? I think because it's not a classic disability. Oh, okay. Simple as that. It doesn't even feel like a documentary to me. Like, it makes you much more conscious of what you're watching. Uh, Like, in my notes, I basically put that these shows kind of work like a modern freak show. Yeah. Because you're kind of intrigued, like, this is so weird, this is so... Like, a kind of morbid curiosity. And I I think if you say the word disability, you're like, oh. I did think there was a difference between The Boy in the Bubble and a lot of the other body shock documentaries. So The Boy in the Bubble was originally a PBS documentary, right? It was produced by the American... Yeah, it was produced by PBS, the American Public Broadcasting Service. And I felt like you could tell because of... It was just... I just felt it was a bit more sensitive and less sensational than some of the Channel 4 ones. Even the title, like The Boy in the Bubble, I think is a lot less clickbaity than The Man with Ten ten Stone Testicles, Turtle Boy, or Our Daughter the Mermaid. Yeah. And... The Mermaid one was actually The Curse of the Mermaid. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> it gets worse. Mm-hmm. Oh. So starting off, I did prefer the title. Shout out to Paul Simon. Um, um, but also, it was quite self-aware. So they also spoke about how the media covered David Vetter's journey and they, like, how the media possibly could have investigated more because of they sold the story as an amazing medical achievement and how David Vetter was basically doing just fine in that quote-unquote bubble whereas there was issues like essentially he was going to die in that bubble within 12 years they did actually openly criticize the kind of spectacle of it like one of the guys said it was like watching a rat in a laboratory yeah and he said that david vetter was essentially a guinea pig which he was pretty much like his death actually pretty much led to a cure as far as I'm aware, or it certainly kick-started the cure, but he was more of a kind of medical marvel than he was a person. Like, his mum didn't get to touch his hand until the day he died. And one of the sources said that they felt he was a research subject as well as a patient, but I actually thought he was a research, research subject more than he was a patient. I agree. I'm so glad the documentary highlighted that, because I do think in some instances, we as a society place a lot of faith in doctors. Um, and drug companies when it comes to how we how we perceive disabilities. So I think it's really good that they highlighted the fact that the doctors in this case had another agenda. They wanted to find a cure for this really debilitating illness, and David Vetter was helping them to do that. Yeah, exactly. What do you think about the way it addressed ethics? I thought it was interesting how it did it, actually. Like, yeah. it did address them, is the main thing. Yeah, yeah, bottom line. And... I think one of the things that it questioned was, was it ethical for David Vetter's parents to have, to conceive when they knew that the chance of their child having severe combined immune deficiency was like, what was it, 50% if the child was a boy? Yeah. Yeah, so they were asking whether that was ethical. They never came to like a concrete conclusion because I don't think there is one. But it really makes you think. Well, my thing is like not necessarily conceiving a child. She didn't cons- that she was advised to get an abortion when they found out it was a boy, mm-hmm. but she didn't. Um, which I, get, you know, the choice is still up to the mother. But the thing that got me was it was eight weeks between her first child who had this illness dying, eight weeks after she was pregnant mm-hmm. again. 
Yeah. And one of the sources essentially said that they thought she was kind of manipulated a bit by the doctors because of she was told, look, like you're she, within her child, that short time of her child dying. She had a conversation with the doctors where they were saying, like, look, if you did have another kid, we have this amazing technology, like NASA engineered bubble that could really help. And we're working on a cure. And some one of the I think it might have been the child psychologist was saying, like, as a mother who's just lost a child and you're grieving, you'd be like, yeah, like I, I would like another child. Um, and then obviously there's the ethical issue of keeping a child in a bubble for all their life. Yeah. Because it was meant to only be temporary until they could do a marrow transplant, but they couldn't find a match. So they're like, oh, yeah, we'll just keep it until we find a match. And they they didn't. There's this picture of him that I found of him and his mum, like, smiling together. It just looks like an average family photo, but they've got this plastic wall in between them, which I found, it was just so striking. And I'll, I'll try and put a picture of it in the show notes, but that kind of makes you think about the ethics of the whole thing. Um, it spoke about how religion played a huge part because was one of the doctors was a Catholic priest or something like that? Yeah, he was an ordained minister, I believe. But the parents were also devout yeah, Catholics. And so, so obviously abortion is not a thing they yeah, want to do. and they place a lot of um, religious and... faith in his recovery and finding the cure. A lot of it was, a lot of the strength and the strength and the faith they were getting was from their belief in God. It would be interesting also to have an episode about religion and disability and what impacts faith has when you are struggling or facing challenges. Well, also the belief that religion can heal and prayer can heal. Yeah. For example, what are they called? Exorcisms on people with mental illnesses. Okay. <laughs> that is that is a whole other episode, maybe two episodes. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll not a do whole that series. today. I can literally talk about that for a while. Let's <laughs> do another episode on it. Yeah, basically, I think the other thing was um, because it took place in the seventies. The documentary took place early thousands, I think. Um, you can look on it in a very different way, whereas these other documentaries, they normally the subjects are still alive and you're watching them yeah, go through. Yeah, that's a key thing that I thought we didn't get a chance to hear David's voice, David's take on the whole thing. No, it was all about Which obviously him. they didn't have any control over, but uh, it just takes away a bit of agency, doesn't it? And I kind of want to talk about kind of documentaries about disabilities in general because a lot of it is about spectacle. As I said, like, it's almost like a modern freak show. Like, there's a lot of clickbait yeah, videos. Yeah, those short clips you see on YouTube or circulating Facebook. The Curse of the Mermaid. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, am I, am I boring, yeah. sir? <laughs> yeah, you are. Can you shut up? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm a very tired person. Uh, I have depression. Let me live. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I think that's a great place to end. Solid. Yeah, so thanks a lot for listening. If you liked us, let us know. Let us know on iTunes, rate and review. You can also follow us on our personal socials. My Twitter is at FKA Chibs. Mine is Cakes 93 Cool. Yeah, thanks again for listening. And episode two will be out at the start of next month. So look out for it.